You have drawn 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 18, Looking Out for Your Interests. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week's episode is Big Brother, the NBN operation with a zero cost. It's one influence. You can only play it if the runner is tagged. And if you do, you give the runner four tags. That's a buff from the reboot project. It used to be just two. And the flavor text says, looking out for your interests since 1984. Well, the specific reason I chose that card has to do with the anonymous tip segment, but the bulk of this episode is going to be focused on a study in static, the fourth data pack for Netrunner. And we will examine the runner side of the card pool, what's added, what's been changed. Uh, But let's get going with the anonymous tip. Anonymous tip, the buff bracket. So this is something that was running on Discord through the months of July and August. And I'll just quote the big boy here from the beginning of the project. I made a list of the 64 buffed cards I've seen people use or talk about the most. I put them all in a randomized single elimination bracket. Each day I'll post two cards. Vote for your favorite buffed card. So, we can't always know what prompted somebody to vote one way or the other. So, we're not talking about necessarily, is this the strongest? Is this the best? It's just, again, he said your favorite buffed card. So, some people would have voted for something they liked or liked to play. Some people might have voted for what they thought was the best. And there were only about 15 or 20, 25 people voting for most rounds. But... I think it's still interesting to see the results, and I think it's still relevant. So there were 64 cards in this buff bracket, and of those 64, 12 came out of the core set. 18 came from the Genesis cycle, um, although we're only, we've only covered about half of those. We haven't seen all of those cards yet. That's 30 total, 30 out of 64. That's close to half the bracket, even though... Those two, the core set and the Genesis cycle, only cover less than a third of the entire card pool. So there's already a disproportionate number of cards from early in the game that were in the bracket. And that makes sense because one of the sort of foundational concepts of the Reboot Project is that Fantasy Flight, especially early, were really cautious not to make things that were too strong. And they largely succeeded. But that success means that some of the things they made were a little bit too weak. And so there have been lots of of buffs of those cards. And they're usable cards. They're useful cards. Uh, But even though the core set and Genesis cycle comprised 47% of the bracket, what's extra crazy is how many of from those sets made the final rounds of the tournament. In the Sweet 16, 
12 of the cards are from Core or Genesis. That's 75%. In the Elite Eight, seven of them. Seven out of eight. So that's 88%. And they comprise the entire Final Four. So the anonymous tip for this week is basically, here are some cards that have been buffed in Reboot and that are widely considered to be fairly good within the Reboot community. So you might consider adding them to your decks. Well, I'm just going to cover, starting from the quarterfinals, uh, the Elite Eight, and I'll also, as I go through, I'll include the performance of each card in the first few rounds. Now remember, these are not in any particular order, uh, the big boy said. That means that they are unseeded. We don't have a number one seed that was expected to do well versus a number 64 and so on. And I'm going to be referencing several cards that we haven't covered yet, and I'm also not going to take the time to explain them. So in the first quarterfinal, we had HQ Interface, which is coming up in pack five. It defeated Cyberfeeder, 11-7 in the first round, Lycan, 14-2, and Mr. Lee, 12-4. It went up against Armitage Codebusting from the core set, which defeated Compromised Employee, 17-9 in the first round, then Singularity, 12-8, and Market Research, 13-5. In this quarterfinal, Armitage defeated HQ Interface 10 to 9. So very narrowed win for Armitage there. In the second quarterfinal, we had Ken Tenma, Ken Express Tenma. Uh, he comes from Honor and Profit, the second deluxe expansion. So that's the one non-corset Genesis card that made the quarterfinals. He got there by defeating Test Run 8 to 7, Hadrian's Wall 10 to 8, and TGTBT, 10 to 8. So those are all very narrow one or two vote victories. And he went up against Red Herrings from the core set, which defeated Express Delivery, 11 to 7, Rainbow, 11 to 1, and Exile, 13 to 6. So none of those were too close. And not surprisingly, I think, based on those performances, Red Herrings defeated Ken Tenma, 13 to 4. In the third quarter final, we have Big Brother, our title card from Pack 2, which defeated Dinosaurus in the first round, 12-3, Hudson 1.0, 13-4, and narrowly squeaked by Fetal AI, 9-8. It went up against the identity for NBN, The World is Yours, from the sixth pack of the Genesis Cycle, which defeated Witness Tampering, 13-2, Medical Research Fundraiser, 16-2, to two, but only squeaked by Heimdall 1.0, 8-7. So both of these narrowly made it into the final eight, and Big Brother defeated The World Is Yours, 9-7. to seven. Then in the fourth quarter final, it was Hourglass from this pack, pack four, A Study in Static, which defeated Freelance Coding Contract, 10-8, Woman in the Red Dress, 10-8, and Amazon Industrial Zone, 12-4. It went up against Posted Bounty from the core set, which is uh, 1, 2, 3 from the core, so 3 from the core, 4 from Genesis, which defeated Superior Cyberwalls, 13-5, Sports Hopper, 9-4, and Thomas Haas, 9-4, 
but it was a very close one here. Posted Bounty only edged out Hourglass 9-8. to eight. So your final four ended up being Red Herrings against Armitage Code Busting, and it was yet another no problem for Red Herrings, 11-5. to five. And Big Brother went up, against, went up against Posted Bounty and had its third straight close contest. Uh, it defeated Posted Bounty 10-8. to eight. So it edged out Fetal AI by one, The World is Yours by two, and Posted Bounty by two. And so you might think just based on performances that those narrow victories would lead to a big defeat, but uh, no. In the finals, Big Brother trounced Red Herrings 17-10. to 10. So then it kind of, you know, arguably then you have to look at how big the gap was, and it seems like the random distribution of the cards maybe clumped together a bunch of good ones in one bracket. For example, there in the Sweet 16, you had in this bracket with Big Brother, Fetal AI, Heimdall 1.0, and The World is Yours. And so, remember, Big Brother defeated The World is Yours by two, Fetal AI by one, The World is Yours beat Heimdall by one, so you'd have to guess that if Heimdall had went up against Big Brother, that would also have been close. So that might be your real final four right there, for as close as they all were. And and you could argue Fetal AI is the real runner-up because it almost took down Big Brother. Anyway, those are a slew of good cards that have been well rebooted, favorably viewed as rebooted uh, here in the Corset and Genesis cycle. Satellite Uplink, a study in static, the runner side. This fourth data pack for Android Netrunner was released in March 21st of 2013, so uh, six months, six and a half months after the core set came out. They were keeping to their monthly release cycle pretty good here early on. From the release article, we are told, quote, the cards more fully explore the nature of time in Android Netrunner and the consequences of accelerating or stalling runs, unquote. So uh, I guess you can look for that. And it, yeah, you know, I guess, I guess there's maybe a little bit of a theme there. There's at least two or three runner cards that uh, go that way. Hourglass is one that is true for the Corp. I haven't analyzed those yet. We'll get there next week. The runners received nine cards in this pack to the Corp's 11. For the runners, that was uh, three for Anarch, two for Criminal, two for Shaper, and a Neutral. Oh, I'm sorry, two Neutral. And for the Corpse, two each for HB, Jinteki, and NBN. Wayland gets four, including a new identity. And there's also a neutral Corp card. Of these 20 cards, 13 received an adjustment for reboot. Four on the runner side, but nine of the 11 on the Corp side. Though once again, there were no nerfs this time for the runner side. So let's take a look at those four buffs. Two of them went to Anarch. First for Disruptor. What was a one-cost program became a zero-cost program with one influence. It has a trash ability to reduce the base trace strength of a trace being initiated to zero. So that's pretty powerful. Can, well, I'm not supposed to comment here. Moving on, then. 
Uh, that was an Adam S. Doyle art on that one, former Maker's Eye subject. The other Anarch card buffed was Force of Nature, which went from being five cost to two. So a two cost decoder with a strength of one, one influence. For two credits, break up to two code gate subroutines. And for one credit, plus one strength. The criminal car that was buffed was Doppelganger, or Doppelganger. I'm not German. That probably was a terrible German pronunciation. I apologize to any German listeners. Feel free to correct me. Uh, it has two influence. It is a console. It used to cost three. It now costs one. It gives you an extra memory unit, and once per turn, you may immediately make another run when a successful run ends. And then the neutral card that was buffed was Inside Man, which went from costing three to one. It's a resource that gives you two recurring credits with which to install hardware. Now the five unchanged cards, the other Anarch card, Scrubber, a two-cost resource, one influence, that gives you two recurring credits to trash cards. So this is a weaker version of the wizard ability. For criminal, their other card, Crescentus, a one-cost program with one influence, you can trash it to derez a piece of ice, but only after you've broken all the subroutines during a single encounter. Once again, we see some Adam S. Doyle art here. Both Shaper cards are unchanged. The first is Deus X, a three-strength, sorry, three-cost icebreaker. No subtype, just icebreaker. Its strength is 10. 10. And it has one influence. Its abilities are you can trash it to break any number of AP subroutines, or you can also trash it to prevent any amount of net damage. The other Shaper card is All Nighter, a zero-cost resource, two influence. Click and trash the card to gain two clicks. So it's kind of like a biotic labor from the court a little bit. Uh, along with Doppelganger, these are the obvious ones that are playing with time, right? Because they're giving you extra clicks, basically. And the other neutral card is Underworld Contact, a two-cost resource. When your turn begins, gain a credit if you have at least two memory units. Matrix Analyzer. Let's take a look at a little more detail on a couple of these buffs. Starting with Inside Man. In some ways, this is a variation on Kate's ability. Right? So Kate gives you a shaper card that gives you one credit Basically, it's like a recurring credit. It's not called that. It's just the first time you install a piece of hardware or program every turn, it's discounted by one. Well, this gives you two recurring credits to spend on hardware only. You also have to pay a credit to be able to use that ability and have access to that ability, and you have to include it in your deck, obviously. So, But how useful is this having two credits a potential two-credit reduction on hardware every turn. Well, at this point, there are 16 pieces of hardware available to install. But of these, six are consoles, right? So you're never going to install more than one of those. So that's 10 pieces of hardware. 
So it seems to me the times you'll be installing lots of hardware that might warrant including a card in your deck specifically to make that cheaper is probably not very common at this point. Um, and so if the card cost three, which it really did originally, then it's particularly unlikely that that's worth slotting into your deck. So we see it's advantage to, to slotting it down to one. You know, even Rabbit Hole doesn't benefit that much from, those are something you want to definitely install multiples of, right? But you're only get, you're going to install them all in one turn, and you're not going to get a discount on the first one. The first one will be free. So you say, it's, so it's four credits to install three rabbit holes instead of six. I mean, that's not nothing. Except you paid a credit and a click to install your inside man. So it's, it's got, it washes. You still need to be installing more hardware. Armitage, I mean, our Cyber Feeder, if you're also playing Cyber Feeder, I guess, there's some hardware you might want three of, but they're only one apiece. So you're really looking for more, maybe some more expensive hardware. Over the next couple of packs, we're going to see the interfaces, HQ interface and R&D interface. Those are a little more expensive. Maybe you want multiples of those. They provide multi-access. Uh, otherwise, you know, I'm, I don't really see a good use case for Inside Man at this point in the card pool. Let's talk about Doppelganger. This is a criminal console. Now, on the one hand, this console basically gives you a free click. That's good. But the knock on it has always been, well, so does Desperado, right? It gives you a free credit. If a click equals a credit, then that's about the same. But it works on every run. So if you make two runs, you can make two runs with, Desp with Doppelganger. But you could also make two runs with Desperado and get two credits. So it, it kind of is a wash there. And the Desperado is going to work every, every time. Doppelganger, sometimes the run's going to fail. Desperado, uh, well, I guess sometimes the run's going to fail there too. But if it succeeds, you always get the credit. You can get the credit four times, potentially. And so basically, this comes back to the question that's going to always reverberate throughout the card pool, which is, what does this criminal console do that makes it worth playing over Desperado. Now, originally, when they were first released, both of these cards cost three, both gave one MU, and so the only difference was the effect, the extra run for Doppelganger, the one credit per run for Desperado. So it was almost an automatic loss for Doppelganger in most decks. Well, the other difference was, is Doppelganger is one less influence, so I guess... If you're trying to export it to a different faction, that might be different. However, in Reboot, there are some more significant differences. For one, Desperado no longer has the MU. And Doppelganger has been reduced to only one-third of the price, just one credit instead of three. That's a significant discount. So theoretically, that should make it much more appealing to play because it's cheaper. And if you're wanting to install multiple programs, that's easier to do with Doppelganger than Desperado. And yet, I think it's telling that all three of the pre-constructed criminal decks still use Desperado over Doppelganger. That reliable one-credit drip is just more consistent than the not-always-reliable and not-always-useful extra run that you can have. And then the other card I want to talk about is Force of Nature. But since it's an icebreaker... Let's do a different segment for that. 
data sucker, icebreakers. I like to, whenever we have a new icebreaker available, and going forward as we have new pieces of ice available, I'm going to integrate them into the analysis I've already done. So we've got two icebreakers in this pack. Um, let's talk about force of nature first, the Anarch Decoder. Ever since it was first printed, it has been considered a laughably bad card. Originally, it was the same install cost as Yog.0, 5, but so very clearly worse. I mean, Yog can walk right through code gates, and Force of Nature is really expensive. However, unlike Yog, you can increase the strength of it. So that means first, let's compare it actually to Gordian Blade, our, our standard decoder. And how well does it compare to Gordian Blade? Not well. So at root, the problem is the break ability. Similar to Battering Ram and Aurora, it's spend two credits to break up to two subroutines. So you always have to spend two. That means very frequently it's carrying an extra one credit tax right there because the majority of ice only have one sub. So you have to pay two to break that one sub, whereas something like Gordian Blade only has to pay one. So that's strike one. Strike two is that it's also only strength one, which means as you're comparing it to Gordian Blade, that's another credit you're going to have to spend every time to equal the strength. So very often, it's two credits every time to break a subroutine. And... And that's especially true since the effects on the extra subs, the one that have two subroutines, you don't always have to break them. Sometimes you can just absorb the effect, like Enigma, for example. Often you don't have to break that lose-a-click subroutine. You can just run on your last click if you're feeling a little bit cheeky. So two credits is the common difference between breaking. And it, it, here we go again. Two credits doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot especially when you have to do it every single time. So the install cost is really crucial. And that's where I think you got the big whiff from the original design team, is they just really overcosted this and made it just not worth having. I mean, you have a key master, Zool key master, that you can import from Shaper, which is the same strength, but has that one-to-one -one break, and it's a lot cheaper to install. But Force of Nature is here for those situations where you need to save the influence. And so now, rather than uh, also costing one credit more to install, in addition to costing two credits more to break every single time, at least you get this. Two, you get a two-credit discount against the install for Gordian Blade. Gordian Blade costs four to install. Force of Nature only costs two. So that first code gate that you have to break, probably Gordian Blade and Force of Nature are going to be the same cost to install and break one code gate. And then after that, Force of Nature just gets more and more expensive. But again, just if you have to save influence, maybe that's what you have to do. At least it's a, 
seems like a legitimate option. A two-cost install is just way easier to swing, especially early in the game, than five. Well, now let's compare it to Yogg, Anarch's other decoder. And as I analyze the code gates, honestly, I'm, I continue to be surprised at how few code gates are actually naturally within range of Yogg. Once again, in this pack, we're seeing two more code gates that coming in that have a strength of four. Yogg's strength is three. Victor 1.0 was changed to four in reboot. That means that of the 12 code gates that we have through a study in static, half of them, six of them, are strength four. That's a relevant point. Put that in your mind. Tuck it away. The fact that there are so many strength four pieces of ice is something that will be particularly notable in a few months. Let's see if I remember to bring it back up later. And then of the remaining six that are not strength four, three of them are stronger, although two of those are Sensei and Cell Portal. And that leaves only three that are three, three strength or less. In fact, none are three strength at the moment. So, and of those three that are three strength or less, one is Chimera and one is Pop-Up Window. So, Yogg basically always needs help, right? There's going to be so many four strength code gates you're going to run into. You're just, you need to have Ice Carver or Data Sucker or Parasite, something to reduce strength. I guess Worm. Right? I guess Worm would work. You could reduce the strength with Worm and then you go through it with Yogg. Whatever the case, it's a, a second card. And that's fine because Anarch wants to run those tools, typically. But at least if you've chosen to build a deck with Anarch that doesn't use those tools, right? Force of Nature is some kind of option. And the fact that now, because Yogg costs one more than it used to, Force of Nature is four credits cheaper to install than Yogg. I mean, it's something. Have you built a deck with Force of Nature? If so, why? Or are you thinking about it? If so, why? Feel free to let me know. Uh, the best place, the most common comments I get are coming in the 2.1 Discord channel. But uh, I, I'm open to private messages or, you know, you can even send me an email. Let's also talk about the other icebreaker, though. Deus Ex. This one's, this one's interesting. It doesn't function like other icebreakers because there's no ability to pay to break or to pay to boost its strength. It also doesn't care about the usual ice subtypes. But it's also not an AI like Crypsis and Worm, where it works on everything. Instead, it, it's looking at ice in a really different way. It's a one-shot counter to AP ice and net damage. But how useful is that? Well, the answer is, of course, it depends. And first of all, the fact that that's the answer means that mm, it's not an automatic going to be an automatic include in a lot of decks. But let's see when it might matter. First, let's talk about the AP ice. Or first, what is AP? The game doesn't actually provide a definition for AP, but I think the general 
thought is that it's short for something like anti, anti-personnel. And so basically, this is going to be a piece of ice that hurts the runner. In the full card pool, there are 27 of these cards. At this point, we've seen seven. Heimdall, which does brain damage. Victor, which does brain damage. Datamine, which does two net damage. Neural Katana does three net damage. Wall of Thorns does two net damage. Janus does four brain damage. And uh, Woodcutter, which can also do net damage. Now, Ichi can also theoretically do damage and should be on here too. But it has so many other subtypes, I think they just ran out of room on the card. So it doesn't have that subtype and therefore is not vulnerable to Deus Ex. So Deus Ex doesn't care what the primary subtype is, right? So barriers, code gates, and sentries. It doesn't care about that. It's looking at a different subtype, whether it's trying to hurt the runner. So I think don't focus on the fact that it trashes itself and only gets you through once. Focus instead on the fact that it only costs you three credits to install it. Well, and a click to install it. And maybe a click to go find it or to bring it back out of your trash. But it lets you get through a piece of ice that, with the best normal breaker, might cost a lot more than that. Heimdall is seven for Corroder. Janus is eight for Ninja. But Deus Ex gets through for three. So that could be powerful. But you notice both of those are HB cards. So if you're not playing against HB, maybe you don't need to worry about it. However, there's the second ability. It dodges net damage, which makes it particularly good against Jinteki. But notice this key point. It's, even though it's an icebreaker, it's not just trash it to avoid net damage from ice. So, data mine, neural katana, wall of thorns. I mean, that's really already covered in the first ability because all the net damage from ice comes from, and woodcutter, I guess, comes from cards that are also AP. But it's any source. So, net damage often comes in little pings of like one, like neural EMP or Jinteki scoring an agenda. But then there's also Project Junebug and Snare. And Deus Ex avoids those two. So, it's also pretty good against Jinteki. And that's where we come back again to, is it useful? And it depends. It depends on your matchup. It could be quite useful in situations against HB or Jinteki. You might not get any use at all from NBN or Wayland, depending on what cards they're running. So it's really a meta call, I suppose. Maybe you include one in your deck just to feel safer, especially if you can go and dig it out. It is a program, so Test Run can go and grab it if you need to. It's a little more expensive to do it that way. But it is really interesting and something to consider when uh, looking at what threats you're likely to face. E3 Feedback Implants. Let's talk a little bit more about our episode from last week, Waldemar 2.1, the deck from HB. I had some comments from the big boy in the Discord channel. 
He said something I didn't think of at the time, because I get I sought his feedback a little bit on how I might improve it. But if you find you can afford it, and maybe you can since you're running the cheap ice walls, one of Sherlock 1.0 might actually be good in this deck. The traces are nearly as good as the hard subs of Ichi, since if they pay eight, there's no way they're beating the upgrade pile. And six strength is extremely hard to break, so they're probably stuck paying two clicks every time, which makes it easy to ash trace them out, and makes it so they can't use those clicks on Heimdall. So I have tweaked that deck to, I took out one Ichi and put in one uh, Sherlock. So I've updated that on the NRDB page. Volatar then went on to ask in a more general way, are there any reboot-specific tips you would give to players learning to corp well? He mentioned about the fact that uh, you know, don't use too many ice, although in reboot you could have a couple more. Are there other early card, early card pool tips that come to mind? And the big boy responded by saying, I think try playing the deck from the podcast. You'll learn a lot. And Muryu jumped in to say, how many years have you been telling people, play Man Ups HB, you'll learn a lot. By which she means mandatory upgrades. And the big boy was like, long time. The actual answer, of course, his article was October of 2015 when he was recommending that. So I guess play Waldemar, have fun, learn Corp. One other bit of feedback. The author of that article from Stimhack about Glacier, Medio Hardcore, I said I wasn't sure who that was or how to pronounce his name. Turns out it's Dan D'Argenio, the world champ from 2014 and 2015. So yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Enigma. Let's take a look at a few of the cards and specifically their flavor. Uh, I like the flavor text on All Nighter, where it says, I don't care what the studies show. From my experience, I can ingest three cans of diesel an hour for up to 12 hours before going into cardiac arrest. Heard during the 11th hour. That's funny. And uh, the flavor text on Inside Man, where it shows uh, a janitor pushing a uh, his cart or bucket or something, and then there you can see this this shiny, sparkly little electronic gizmo sta- uh, stashed away. Said few corporate employees have such wide sweeping security clearance as the janitorial staff. Most corps foolishly think they're too dimwitted to take advantage of it. And remember, the ability on Inside Man is to more cheaply install hardware, and it is more cheap if you can have the janitor steal it from from you and pay less for it. So I think that's pretty funny. And let's talk about underworld contact. First of all, the art. It just looks wrong somehow, right? Like his hand is backwards. Although looking closely, I I don't think it is actually backwards. It looks like his phone is upside down. But I guess I don't know what he's actually holding in his hand. It's the future. Maybe that's how you hold these things. But the way he's holding it up to his head, it's like he's holding, it's like he's holding an earbug. Right, like he's he's, you know, like the classic. Put your hand up to your ear, and and so that you can tell that you're listening to something in your ear. But then they pushed a phone in there. Anyway, it received criticism at the time, 
But uh, that, I think, became sort of a goofily beloved card when uh, when they retain when they changed it for the second core set, the revised core set. They changed the art as well, and that revised art is, you know, it's objectively better. It's higher quality, I think. But there was actually a little pushback from people. I remember hearing on podcasts at the time, like, "Oh no, we're getting rid of the old Wonderworld contact and his goofy, his goofy phone." So reboot retains the original art. I think that's the right call. One comment on Netrunner DB is just says, "I never really learned how to hold a mobile. I'm just improvising." It also looks like it's another runner card taking place in a bathroom, like inside job. I mean, you look, you see that you can see two mirrors. You can see like maybe a little soap dispenser between them. I don't know. Bathroom theme. That's the art. Now, uh, what does the flavor of the card have to do with the ability on the card? Right? So the flavor is my boss rewards quality work. If you know it's good for you, you'll keep it up. It's a guy taking a call in a bathroom Sounds kind of vaguely threatening. Anyway, if you have two plus two or more link, you get a credit when your turn begins. Okay, fine. I guess the first question is really what's link? I sort of always figured that it has something to do with the runner's computer. But now that I'm actively thinking about it, I guess the trace mechanic is supposed to be you kind of like those scenes in the movie where you have, you know, the authorities are trying to pin down the location of someone who's talking on a payphone, and, you know, they're, they're routing, they've routed their call through many different locations. So they're trying to trace the call back to its location, right? Uh, my mind goes to the scene near the end of the first Mission Impossible movie, right before the sequence on the, the channel where Tom Cruise is is doing exactly that, trying to get them to localize his position to a point. But, you know, I'm sure you can think of loads of others. So if that's the context of what a trace is supposed to be like, then the link, which you'll note, the symbol for link is actually stylized links in a chain, must be that part where you're routing your signal through other devices, right? Or in this case, routing your hack rather than your phone call. I don't know how you'd actually route a phone call through different locations. Uh, maybe that's easier than I think it is, but I don't, I don't know how I would do it. So you're putting diff- additional steps between you and the person who's trying to track you down. Okay, that's the concept, but then what is the link? Like, when you're paying off a trace, I guess you're paying to quickly set up these additional links between you and the corp server. You're trying to lose the trace by, by, I don't know, doing something with your signal. So if you, I guess if you have link installed, right, so you've taken precautions in advance by routing your signal through other devices first, okay. I guess that all sort of hangs together. But now let's come back to underworld contact. A guy sitting in a bathroom, taking a phone call and being told, if you know what's good for you, you'll keep it up. What part of the here where Link gives you more money, that whole exchange on this card, how does the guy in the picture factor in? 
or the person who's listening to on the phone. What, who is that? And how does he factor into this? Well, if you have an extra couple link, you get an extra, you get extra money. Why is the runner making money on this deal? The runner, how's the runner involved in any of this? I don't know. If you have some kind of explanation, no matter how tenuous it might be, I'm all ears. And the best place to drop such an explanation is probably in the Discord channel, the 2.1 specific channel. But, um, you know, anywhere is fine. You email me. Here's some contact information for you. My email address, which is anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. The point there is the symbol, the decimal point. Uh, but you buy a username is A-W-E-B-E-R-M-A-N on Discord and BoardGameGeek and Reddit and Stimhack. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. The music is from Alexi Action. And do you want to play reboot games? Well, go over to retechie.fun, where often you'll see there are zero games going. It's a still a relatively small community. But there are a number of people who are often free to play games. And that's why you go in the Looking for Game channel in the Discord server, LFG. And... Very frequently, at many times of the day, you're able to get a game going that way. The AstroScript pilot program, we have finished the introduction. And now we're moving on into part one of the book called It Is the Future. And the first seg- section, first big section we'll be covering over the next several weeks is Haas Bioroid. Thanks for listening. See you next week. It is the future. Think for a moment about the powers at your disposal. If you want something, it can be yours with little more than a thought. Any food you desire can be prepared by robot or android chef and delivered right to your multi-med room. Any media from throughout human history can be streamed directly from the largest and most interconnected communications network ever conceived. Do you want a toy? Or a piece of clothing? Or a chair? It can be downloaded and printed either at your in-home maker box or just down the slidewalk in a dedicated maker space. You need not fear hunger, nor thirst, nor the cold, nor the heat. Your every want, every need, is quickly satisfied by the corporations that make up your life. Capitalism won the great struggle of the 20th and 21st centuries, and the corporations are its scions. They hold the real power now, as strongly as any government. Controlling most governments, if the anti-cap movements are to be believed. The crown jewels of corp supremacy and corp technology are the androids, artificial people modeled on the real thing, which you can buy and sell and own. Some say that slavery is back in a new and horrible way. Others say that a machine is a machine. Still others say that we're meddling where we ought not 
that androids are abominations that shouldn't exist. One way or another, we live in interesting times. Haas Bioroid The company that would become Haas Bioroid began over a hundred years ago as a robotics and heavy manufacturing business supplying numerous EU nations with heavy-duty construction equipment. Jürgen Haas and his brothers founded Haas Industry to specialize in the manufacture of robotic and automated machinery that required little human oversight or interaction. The company quickly secured lucrative contracts with several of the EU's largest and most successful firms. All too eager to cut costs and boost productivity, Haas Industry eventually moved into the field of automatic control systems. Research into communication and control theory was already well underway, but Haas's involvement caused a marked spike in progress for the burgeoning field of cybernetics. When Jürgen Haas died, leadership of the company passed to his son, Dieter. Eager to build on his father's legacy, Dieter saw an opportunity in expanding the company's portfolio into design and manufacture of prosthetics. Technology at the time was rapidly advancing the complexity and sophistication of replacement limbs, and Haas Industries' background in robotics placed it at the forefront of design. The success of Haas Industries' cybernetics initiative led to an explosion in the market. Customers began to demand more precise limb replacements and greater control over its artificial implants. Haas Industry responded by pouring resources into researching these goals. The result was highly sophisticated neuroprosthetic devices capable of adapting the behavior of a cybernetic limb to its owner's neural impulses. Haas made great strides in the field, but swiftly came to the conclusion that further advances would require a greater understanding of the human brain. Research into brain imaging was begun, which proved to be a lengthy process. The final keystone to Haas Industries' success fell into place about 30 years ago. Although the exact details about when and how this happened remain frustratingly vague, control of the company passed to the indomitable Cynthia Haas, better known as Director Haas, at her insistence. Rumors abound that Director Haas is the illegitimate child of the late Dieter Haas, and she murdered her way to the top, creating the persona of Director Haas along the way. Stranger still are the tales that Director Haas is actually a child of the original Jürgen Haas, fertilized in vitro from a frozen sample of his DNA, or that she was built in a lab and was the most advanced bioroid model constructed until her son. Of course, the more likely truth is Director Haas is simply the daughter of Dieter, and likes to keep details of her private life confidential. Either way, Haas Industry became aware of a small computational neuroscience company called the Rossum Group and acquired them. 
At the time, this was seen as just another corporate merger. However, Director Haas had discovered that the Rossum Group was working on a highly advanced technology capable of producing working models of a brain based on brain tapes featuring unprecedented accuracy and detail. After the acquisition, this technology was integrated into Haas Industries' own research. The result was the development of one of the most significant technological breakthroughs of recent years, neural channeling. The advent of neural channeling techniques allowed Haas Industry to realize its dream of true AI, or come as close to it as ethics would allow. Following this breakthrough, the company began development on its first commercial android, the Mark II. The Mark, as it was commonly called, debuted in the last years of the war as a general-purpose space exploration model. Hailed as both a step and a leap for mankind, it wasn't long before it was also deployed for disaster relief and cleanup in war-torn areas with dangerous levels of biological contamination or radioactive fallout. The Mark II was a resounding success and ushered in a new age of artificial intelligence, one that could learn and improve with time. The company swiftly created a host of these machines, high-spec cybernetic bodies coupled with strong artificial intelligence. The Bioroid as we know it was born, and the company changed its name to Haas Bioroid. The invention was a runaway success, and with it the company paved the way for labor solutions, which would replace an inefficient and unreliable human workforce with the superior engineering of bioroids. Despite vocal opposition from a number of activist groups, the bioroid represents one of the most significant technological advances of the era. The speed with which HB achieved its grip on the labor solution market has kept it ahead, barely, of arch-rival Jinteki. Current Projects Haas Bioroid remains the market leader in industrial robotics and heavy manufacture. HB's automated assembly lines can be found in corporations from Earth to Mars, and one would be hard-pressed to find a hopper that wasn't built using some aspect of HB technology. Aside from these benchmark technologies, Haas Bioroid continues to expand into cutting-edge fields in cybernetics, brain-machine interfacing, cybersecurity, and defense. Cybernetics and BMIs Haas Bioroid's cybernetics division works tirelessly to produce artificial limbs for our veterans and medical implants to help those with serious illness. Moreover, the latest synth-skin-covered cyberlimbs has allowed more than 500 million people to take back their dignity without the stigma of prosthetics or the danger of under-tested genetic modification. Hasbiroid's continued investment in the personal cybernetics field has led to many more lives being saved, whether it was a soldier saved from a lethal bullet thanks to his subdermal armor, or a disaster victim rescued from certain death by emergency personnel 
augmented with internal air supplies or strength-enhancing exosuits. Osbioroid is also heavily involved in the fields of brain-machine interfaces, BMI, and neural recognition. Its BMI units, both wearable and available as implants, are bleeding-edge tech, revolutionizing military training. Arms Sales As the war began to heat up on Luna, Mars, and even Earth, nearly all megacorporations branched into the defense industry. Networked Emergent and Experimental Technology Design, NEXT, was a natural extension of Haas Industries' advanced assembly lines, as applied to weapons manufacturing. The division's first products were smart guns that used advanced AI technology for targeting and trigger security, including cutting-edge IFF protocols. In the race to compete for lucrative government contracts, Next developed the first personal-scale applications of energy weapon technology, which saw extensive use on both sides of the war. The designs for the laser pistols and rifles had to be protected from rival corporations as well as a new breed of net criminal, necessitating the development of new intrusion countermeasures technology to protect its designs. In peacetime, NEXT continues to focus on creating increasingly sophisticated network defenses and encryption protocols to secure intellectual property and trade secrets. Cybersecurity HB's security division is making the network a safer place to do business. HB is the only provider of dedicated intrusions countermeasures bioroids, or bioroid ice. Bioroid ice utilizes the same neural channeling software found in the optical brains of other bioroids. This sets it apart from all other competitors, as HB's security systems are capable of self-improvement. These suites are able to analyze the specific setup of a local network and adapt the behavior of any installed programs to better protect it. They can also learn from intrusion attempts and implement new strategies to better defend against such tactics in the future. Clients can choose from a selection of security packages, ranging from barrier suites to large-scale network solutions capable of launching aggressive cyber attacks at any unwanted intruders. Hasbioroid is also an industry leader in more traditional forms of ICE. The innovative Next Design suite of countermeasures, for example, demonstrates unparalleled networking capability, allowing for an integrated defense system that reassigns resources to the attacked server. Two, Director Haas, CC, Executive Vice President Carl Meyer. From Dr. Jesenia Delisle. Subject, Status Report on Project Vitruvius. Director, please find attached the results for our latest round of tests regarding Project Vitruvius. We are making considerable ground in the field of memory retention, 
with 66% of the subjects able to recall significant events from their lives before extraction. This is more than enough evidence to greenlight a further round of tests once the necessary adjustments have been made. I understand you are hoping for a more noteworthy improvement over the last round of subjects, but I assure you we are doing everything in our power to improve the results with each iteration. An increase in our department's funding would allow us to advance our timeline by a larger margin in subsequent experiments. Unfortunately, this round of tests has shown little or no improvement in emotional and cognitive response. Our brain imaging techniques appear to be the limiting factor, and I would ask you again to reach out to Dr. Evelyn Ibarra. If we could collaborate with Morph and get a look at their Kronos protocol, I feel certain we would be able to make substantial strides toward full replication. It pains me to mention this, but I feel I should express my concern over the current methodology. The invasive nature of the procedure has led to a number of our subjects entering a persistent vegetative state. I know advancements of this nature require sacrifice, and all subjects are volunteers, but legal waivers won't protect us from a potential PR backlash. Just look at Sunshine Junction. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the matters discussed above at our next progress meeting. Yours respectfully, Dr. Jesenia Delisle, Project Manager, Vitruvius.